0: London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a bountiful cornucopia of our stories from across the week. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. And coming up, how grime artist Stormzy is rewriting the rules of the music industry. Could old technology face down new threats? And the fine art of the perfect copy. But let's start with our cover story, which this week lifted the lid on a new force in global finance. Family offices are in-house investment teams created by billionaires to cut out the middlemen. It's do-it-yourself investing for the hyper-rich.
1: Largely unnoticed, family offices have become a force in investing with up to $4 trillion of assets, more than hedge funds, and equivalent to 6% of the value of the world's stock markets. Though their main task is to manage financial assets, the biggest offices, some with hundreds of staff, undertake all sorts of other chores, from tax and legal work to acting as high-powered butlers who book jets and pamper pets.
0: Every investment boom reflects a society that spawned it.
1: The rise of family offices reflects soaring inequality. Since 1980, the share of the world's wealth owned by the top 0.01% has risen from 3% to 8%. But since the financial crisis, there has been a loss of faith in external money managers. Rich clients have taken a closer look at private banks' high fees and murky incentives, and balked.
0: As the number of billionaires continues to grow, so will the role of family officers. But they're soon going to start facing uncomfortable questions about how they concentrate power and feed inequality.
1: Were Bill Gates to invest exclusively in Turkey, he would own 65% of its stock market. Family offices are becoming more complex. A third have at least two branches, making tax wheezes easier. Hungry brokers and banks are rolling out the red carpet and pitching deals with unlisted firms that are not available to ordinary investors.
0: We urged regulators and treasuries to catch up with these new players in a changing game.
1: In a world that is suspicious of privilege, big family offices have an interest in boosting transparency. In return, they should be free to operate unmolested. They may even have something to teach hordes of flailing asset managers who serve ordinary investors, many of whom may look at their monthly fees and wish that they too could ditch the middlemen.
0: The music industry is another where middlemen have grown used to controlling the balance of power. But as our Britain section explained, a change is going to come and it's got the record labels all shook up.
2: Now a savvier generation of musicians, whom the industry calls artist-entrepreneurs, are building their own brands through social media and are no longer relying on labels for merchandising deals. They want to develop themselves into the assets, says an industry bigwig.
0: Among the first to spot this new power shift was Stormzy, a 25-year-old from South London and a grime music sensation.
3: I
2: might sing, but I ain't sold out. Nowadays, all of my shows sold sold out. out. Headline tour, yeah, blood sold out. When we roll in, they roll out. I'm so London, I'm so so South. I know it's sick. I know it's marketable, he has said. Everything he considers sick, great, is marketed as hashtag murky, the umbrella brand for his empire. There are hashtag murky records, hashtag murky books, and even Stormzy-funded scholarships at Cambridge University. But until January, he refused to sign with a label. Stormzy is his own media company, says Sally Ann Gross, a music industry expert at Westminster University.
0: He's not the first rapper to snub traditional labels, nor the first musician to cash in on his own fame, but the breadth of Stormzy's empire is remarkable.
2: Hashtag Murky is a hub of endless possibilities, says Stormzy. There could be hospitals, schools, even, he has said, a hashtag murky shade of black. When Stormzy at last signed a record deal, it was on his terms. A joint venture with Atlantic Records, with Stormzy as its first, and so far only, signing. For, as Stormzy has put it, man don't work with clowns.
0: For more insights into storms economics, family offices and a wealth of other subjects, pick up your copy of this week's Economist. Or if you haven't already, do subscribe. Simply visit economist.com slash radio offer and you'll get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. Let's tune in to the best of the week in Economist Radio now. On Monday, the Prime Minister Theresa May postponed a parliamentary vote on how Britain should leave the EU. She then survived a no-confidence vote brought by her own party on Wednesday night, only to be told by EU leaders the following day that the deal is still not open for renegotiation. So in the latest episode of The Economist Asks, we headed to Westminster to find out what's next for Brexit. If Parliament can't agree a way forward, should there be a second referendum? With me were Stephen Kinnick, a Labour MP who has an alternative proposal, and John Peet, our own Brexit editor, who had this to say.
4: I think the reason why it's sort of growing in attraction and why more people are talking about it is that they see Parliament gridlocked and unable to agree on any conceivable Brexit deal. And as Stephen has said, Almost all sensible members of Parliament think that to leave with no deal would be disastrous and very bad for the economy. So if you're in that gridlocked situation, the idea of saying, let's see what the people think, is becoming an appealing one. The problem that it has is, uh, what precise question would you put to people? Are you going to put a whole string of options to them, one of which might be the Norwegian option? Or do you have a much more straightforward decision to say either you accept the, the deal that Theresa May has negotiated or you remain in the EU. That will be argued about a lot, but I think the concept of a new vote for the people is growing in
1: appeal.
0: Second vote, yes or no? Uh, I'm
1: not in favour. I am deeply worried about the impact it would have on Parliament. And there's millions of people in the country already hold this place in contempt. I take an old-fashioned view that it's up to parliamentarians to navigate us through messy situations like that. And I think it would potentially cause a constitutional crisis for us and for Parliament as an institution.
0: You can hear the rest of that discussion from the backstop to Norway and back again on The Economist Asks. Subscribe to Economist Radio on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to get our programmes delivered, freshly baked to you every weekday. Our science and technology podcast, Babbage, stepped back from the cutting edge for a moment this week to talk about the enduring fascination of the obsolete. Could old tech bring new benefits? Jonathan Cooper Smith is a historian of technology at Texas A and M University.
1: The U.S. Navy a couple of years ago started training its naval cadets again in how to use a sextant. They'd cut out teaching people how to use sextant because their time is better spent learning other things. But then somebody said, "What happens if there's a war and we lose our, our GPS?" Maybe we should have this um, backup. Indeed, militaries are where you often see some of these obsolete or obsolescent technologies being kept around just in case you need them. And by the way, if the Internet goes down, you can still fax somebody.
0: If you can still remember how to use a fax machine, that is... On our Money Talks podcast, meanwhile, we tried to shed some light on the shadow economy. Louise Shelley is director of the Terrorism, Transnational Crime and Corruption Centre at George Mason University in Virginia. She explained that it's not just sex, drugs and guns. Some of the most valuable commodities of dark commerce are things we take entirely for granted.
3: In many parts of the developing world where there are mega cities, there's not enough water. And there are water mafias operating, selling water to the the poor at just extremely high prices. And if you think about how the Syrian conflict started, it started over an illicit trade in water rights. And so the people in the countryside during the drought couldn't have water to grow their crops. And they migrated by the millions into the cities. And where the conflict started in Syria was in the areas where there was the greatest concentration of migrants. So it all started with an illegal water trade.
0: Back now to our print edition, where China has woken up belatedly to the value of its water sources. To protect them, or in many cases, to try and redeem them from years of pollution, the government has appointed an army of river chiefs.
3: There are now nearly 1.1 million river chiefs. The government says they will be accountable for life, for any serious pollution that relates to a lapse on their watch. It's a tough gig. Earlier this year, a government report said that surface water in nearly a third of river sections surveyed was too risky to touch, let alone drink. Water in nearly 15% of them was rated too dirty even for industrial use. They hope that putting named individuals in charge will
0: help avoid the buck-passing and finger-pointing that's hampered so many past efforts.
3: Whether this is really so may become clearer in 2019, when the government is expected to release data from the first nationwide water quality survey since rivers got their chiefs. But anecdotal evidence is promising. A man fishing in the Baja River recounts how the water was Opaque green and fetid just two years ago. Today it is clear and odourless.
0: A relief for the fish, at any rate. And finally, a piece in our books and art section visited a workshop of master craftsmen trying to preserve an ancient, much maligned practice the art of the copy.
4: We're expert at 3D puzzles, chuckled Stefan Kramer. He slots in the last of some hard, toffee-coloured pieces of plaster that trace the folds of a cloak, mindful that the innermost recesses will soon be the outer contours of a delicate copy of a masterpiece.
0: Mr Kramer is Production Manager at the Gipsformerei, the plaster cast manufactory of Berlin State Museums.
4: Since early 2017, his team has been making a copy of a swathe of the huge high-relief frieze around the base of the Pergamon Altar, a pinnacle of Hellenistic art, dating from the 2nd century BC, for the China Academy of Art, or CAA, based in Hangzhou. The Gigantomachy Frieze, as it is known, depicts a battle between Olympian gods and earthbound giants, their bodies hurtling naked and clothed.
0: In the age of concern over intellectual property, it does seem strange that the museum is so keen to clone its most prized exhibit.
4: But the Gipps eye sees itself as part of a tradition stretching back to Renaissance Italy, where artists learned from casts of ancient statues.
0: The first fragments of these particular casts will travel to China early in the new year.
4: As taking moulds directly from the original frieze is now forbidden... The staff are working on a new hybrid involving laser scanning and traditional mould-making. Gao Ming of the CAA wants contemporary Chinese artists to be inspired by it. It's more than a sculpture, it's a legend, he says.
0: That's the end of this week's Tasting Menu, alas. But if that was just enough to whet your appetite, there's much more at economist.com or from Economist Radio on your podcast app. And while you're with us do leave us a review, preferably a nice one, but we listen to whatever you say. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.